This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, tanned, rested, and ready. Polyoptics is back from a hiatus, trolling the highways and byways from rural Maine to upstate New York, and now we're strapped in for the stretch run of campaign 2012. One of the next big stops for the boys on the bus, Charlotte, North Carolina, site starting September 3rd of the Democratic National Convention. We'll be talking with Theo Lecompte, one-time ace advance man and now the convention's chief operating officer, about what it takes to ready a city for the world's spotlight. Then we're taking the long view, considering all of our 44 presidents through the lens of history. How are they rated? By the academics? By the polls? By the people? It's every political junkie's favorite parlor game and the obsession of some members of the President's Club. Bob Mary, editor of The National Interest and author of the new book, Where They Stand. You have your own list of the best and worst to occupy the Oval Office? Well, what about Bob's? But first, I'm joined by my friend, co-host, our guest on the show today, Matt Makoviak, founder of the Potomac Strategy Group and former press secretary to Senators Kay Bailey Hutchison and Conrad Burns. Matt, welcome back to Polyoptics as we end our two-week hiatus. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Matt, when I, when I disappeared into the Catskills, just like Rip Van Winkle, when Washington Irving wrote his great book in 1819 and fell asleep for 20 years, Mitt Romney was cruising across Lake Winnipesaukee with his wife Anne. The Romney Olympics were in full swing. The Romney family was getting nightly ice creams in Wolfboro. He was having occasional political conferences, strategy sessions on his porch. You were thinking that they might be close to a vice presidential pick. Matt, you even wrote last week uh, a column for the Daily Caller, Romney's considerations for vice president. Can you sketch out what you said in that piece and whether and I and 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 come to grips with the fact that at least one of your predictions was wrong? <laughs> it was a forced prediction by the editor. I must I must admit. Okay. Um, but I looked at sort of the different ways that the Romney team that Boston might be looking at at how to evaluate the different VP candidates, and it starts by you know admitting that obviously those who who speak don't know and those who know don't speak. I mean this is a very closely held conversation. It appears appears to you know be taking place really between Beth Myers, Governor Romney, his wife, and perhaps one or two other people at this point. Um, but I, I said I looked at you know look let's look at let's look at risk let's look at relationship let's look at governing let's look at geography uh, and finally let's look at narrative and if you if you look at each of those categories separately the four people who I believe are the finalists or at least I, I believe last week are the finalists Paul Ryan Bobby Jindal Portman and Paulenty uh, with particular focus on on Jindal uh, Paulenty and Portman uh, they each have strengths and weaknesses I, mean, I think where we are now being that this this you know week appears to have passed. Um, Without a choice being made, uh, is is that uh, it's probably is going to be Portman or Pawlenty because, you know, Romney seems to be a fairly low risk uh, individual. Uh, Portman and, and Pawlenty both are fairly well vetted, uh, seem to have a good, pretty decent relationship, and are both from the Midwest. So, uh, but there are different strengths and weaknesses to each of them. 
after your piece was written, there was a boomlet for former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, maybe coming off of her speech uh, to the Romney fundraising conference in, in I think, Utah. And uh, she made the cover of Drudge. Uh, she seemed to attract a lot of the sort of me types of uh, uh, Democrats, but who, who want to see a ticket that you could possibly bond with. And the notion that Romney, let's face it, has had a hard week this week with the constant pressure of, of of the Democratic operatives and sort of these select Republicans doing a drumbeat for release of more tax returns. You you might think that the pressure is on Boston to go long again, like uh, like Senator McCain did in 2008 with a pick like Condoleezza Rice, a woman, an African-American, someone who would appeal more to moderates. Do you see that happening at all, or is that just a feint? From what we can from what we can gather, it seems like Boston does not believe that although they've been playing defense the last two weeks, that they, that they need a long ball. I mean, if you look at the daily tracking in Gallup, you look at the head-to-head polling, it's still a two- or three-point race, uh, and Obama's you know fundamental numbers on the economy are still fairly soft. Um, now, again, I do think, ta- you know, sort of tactically, Obama's had a, a strong strong two-week period really putting Romney on defense. We're also in the summer months. This is the dog days of summer. There are not Absolutely. a lot of unsighted swing voters are doing normal things, not uh, paying attention to, to campaign politics every day. If it is a long ball, you know, you could look at, and obviously, someone like Bobby Jindal, who's, who, who's Indian-American and, and somewhat exciting, but also a base pick. Uh, I don't think Rubio is really being seriously vetted, but he would certainly be a long a long ball pick. And and Condi obviously, I mean, is in that category. I just think the base would revolt uh, if it's Condi. She brings nothing to you on the economy. You don't need California. She's pro-choice. There's about four huge reasons why she's a problematic pick. Uh, so I don't think she was serious. I think that was a head fake to try to get the press to to look another way off the tax issue. Switching gears, uh, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, came to your home state of Texas this week. How was he received? Uh, fairly well. I mean, it looks like he raised between 3 and $4 million uh, in one day with four events, two in San Antonio and two in Austin. Uh, keep in mind, Texas is, 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 is as darkly red as, as any state. Uh, you haven't had, uh, the Democrats haven't won a statewide elected office in Texas since 1994, uh, and, and they don't seem to be anywhere near uh, electing a statewide elected official uh, in, in 2014, although the demographics of the state are changing. Um, but, you know, look, Obama's very, very uh, popular among the base, among Hispanics in Texas, among African-Americans, among, you know, the few Democrats who are elected at the congressional or state level. So um, he was, I think, well-received in terms of fundraising, uh, but Texas is always an ATM in presidential politics. It's not a place that you go to win votes. Well, that's right, although I do I do remember f- so fondly 1992. Uh, when, I, when I see President Obama going to Texas, I think of when I was dispatched both to central Florida, deep Republican territory in Ocala to manage a Clinton bus tour from uh, Tampa to Miami, um, and then also a Texas bus tour, and I was I was dispatched along the the Rio Grande Trail. Yep. And so uh, the the notion that uh, when when Democrats feel secure enough in their position to devote the time and resources to go deep into red state territory, it says a little something about their confidence, or at least they're trying to signal a level of confidence. Well, maybe. I mean, look, this is more about, this was completely about fundraising and not sure. about campaigning, right? And so you're either trying to campaign, fundraise, or both. In this case, they were just trying to fundraise. It was four events in about four hours. He didn't spend that much time on the ground. 
Um, and obviously, Texas has some complicated issues like immigration and border security. And, and you know, you have a, a, a pretty conservative governor in Rick Perry. He ran for president who just turned down the Medicaid expansion. So there are a lot of complicated issues in Texas. Obama did say in both San Antonio and Austin that he thinks that uh, Texas is turning into a competitive state in the next generation. And I think that's true probably 20, 25 years from now, but not five or 10 years from now. That's right. Just finishing Robert Caro's book, The Passage of Power, and talking about the work that uh, Senator Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson did to help bring the ticket to Kennedy. Is that the last time that that uh, after 64 that Texas has gone for a Democrat? That's my memory. There may have been one year in there. It's possible Clinton. I don't, I don't think Clinton split uh, with, with Ross Perot enough that he, that he, that he won it there. I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't believe so. I believe Texas has been, have been reliably, reliably uh, Republican since 64. But Obama, you know, Obama did narrow it. I mean, I think it was a, a nine, eight or nine points, which I know is not real close, but he got as close as anyone has in a while. But the demographics are changing. It's a majority-minority state. Um, and the bench in Texas for Democrats is very is very weak. Um, but you do have folks like the mayor of San Antonio, uh, Castro, and a couple others who I think have some potential in the next 10, 12, 14 years. So we're in the middle of July and looking at the next uh, six weeks or so. Uh, as my recollections of conventions, particularly 1992, 1996, 2000, was that the timing of these were earlier in the summer, Atlanta 88 and, and uh, New York 92, I think were in July. Yeah. Um, and and the president had, and Governor Bill Clinton had picked Senator Al Gore right before the convention, and they embarked on this bus tour that went from New York all the way to St. Louis, Missouri. Now, Romney has the flexibility to wait out the rest of the summer until he gets to Tampa to announce his vice presidential pick. But tell us about the strategic uh, advantages of going quickly. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, Romney's got you know, this coming week, his foreign trip, goes to London, tries to remind people about him saving the right. Salt Lake Olympics, uh, and then stops uh, both in Israel and a couple of stops in Europe. So that, that foreign trip, obviously, is not a good time to roll out a vice president. Presumably, you'd want to you know, name the person, do the first event, do a series of events over three or four or five days, travel the country together. Um, the idea that behind the piece, I think, was th- that I wrote for Daily Caller was, you know, let's use this this week now to roll them out, and that person can be a surrogate for you uh, while you're on your foreign trip. I mean, the other thing that's obviously changing the calendar is the Olympics. You got two and a half weeks. Uh, Dead time. Yeah, these candidates, I think, are probably going to take a little time off. They're probably going to develop some policy. Um, and I also think they're going to try to raise money wherever they can, but I don't think they're going to be able to get much attention, uh, certainly from, from the, the average voter, the swing voter in these battleground states. So we are looking a little later, but my, my guess is, is honestly now, since they, it appears they didn't take advantage of this week in, in terms of rolling out the vice president, that they'll do it in, in mid-August, you know, do it uh, 7, 10, 12 days before the convention, get a get a boost, get a bump, get some good coverage, and and, and go into the convention with some with some excitement. The advantages to naming them early is you get a surrogate, additional surrogate, you get a new new excitement, a new narrative, someone else who can raise money from their own base and, and create some excitement. And really, if they, if they were if they, I think if they were really worried about the tax issue and they really felt they needed to change the narrative, they would have. Uh, perhaps sped up their vice presidential uh, uh, timetable. From all indications, they were they were just dis- discussing it this past weekend in New Hampshire. Governor Romney was sitting down and, uh, with Beth and, and really sitting down and, and kind of going through strengths and weaknesses for everyone and perhaps making a decision. So that was the timeline I think they were working with. And it probably would have felt rushed if they'd gone this week uh, and named a vice president. Now they can go to the foreign trip, which is which is hugely logistically challenging. You know you've done uh, overseas advance uh, at that level. It's hugely challenging yep. to pull that off. Come back now uh, and uh, get through the Olympics, make the pick right, roll it out the way you want, and then lead into the convention. Well, talking about conventions, uh, let's bring in our good friend Theo LeCompte, who is chief operating officer of the Democratic National Convention. 
Charlotte, North Carolina, starting September 3rd. Theo, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It's uh, great to be here. How are things going in Charlotte? And uh, you were appointed about a year ago back in May. When did you relocate and become a, a North Carolinian from your old Saybrook, uh, Connecticut roots? I, uh, I I started this job uh, over a year ago, last April, actually, uh, and uh, started commuting down to Charlotte in uh, June of 2011. So I've been going down there for about a year. It's going very well down there. We actually just earlier this week uh, took possession of the Time Warner Cable Arena and started the construction that we need to do in order to get ready for the convention in September. So all the electrical upgrades and IT cabling, turning all the suites into media studios, That's uh, that started just this week. Now, you were, you're always been a, a, a prince of a press advance man, one of the best in the business, <laughs> a guy who's who's sort of in the back riser with the media. You know me, I'm I'm the polyoptic guy at the front of the house. Sure. I'm fascinated with sort of thematic design and what is what that arena is going to be transformed into. I thought that uh, Denver, where you worked for uh, Senator Obama and the DNC, was a triumph both inside the arena and, uh, and outside, except well, I'd love to get into actually what happened in the outside event as well at some point, Greek, but um, Greek column gate. the Greek column gate, uh, <laughs> fascinating story. <laughs> but uh, but what's going to be the theme inside? Well, I think uh, our job really down in Charlotte is to create uh, a vessel for uh, for President Obama to come in and really tell a story about why he's running for re-election. So we're we're busy currently setting up some of the nuts and bolts of of what's going to be there um i think that we've we've done a good job of uh doing less with more i think when you see the convention design and when you uh you know when folks get to the um both the arena and the stadium they'll see that you know we've done uh we've gone with a smaller budget and uh and made it work well for us so it, it's it's a little less grand but it's it, it'll look great and it'll be ready for uh the story that uh, president obama and his folks are ready to tell what challenges do you have in in dealing with a uh incumbent president on a reelect rather than uh, dealing with a candidate who's running for the first time. I mean, you have some logistical challenges, probably some advantages, I would think, but also some probably some disadvantages and some frustrations. Uh, you know, I think it's at the end of the day, it's the same in that, uh, like I said, the convention team is building a is building a framework that, it, that the nominee or the the incumbent is going to come into. Uh, I think it's helpful for us in terms of uh, from day one, we had some guidance. We knew what uh, the president wanted out of this convention and uh, how he wanted to present this as you know open and accessible. We uh, the Thursday night in Denver was was a pretty magic event and and was very successful from an organizing perspective. Uh, and so why you know you see us down in Charlotte doing much the same sort of thing. And uh, what you'll see on Thursday at Bank of America Stadium down there is is going to be again uh, opening up the convention to uh, tens of thousands more Americans. And that's. So we had that direction from the get-go as opposed to 2008 where we found out about 74 days before it happened that, that we were going to change what happened on that last night. So it, we have that advantage. Give our listeners some honest insight into the mechanics of site selection, uh, the practical considerations, the geographic considerations of deciding where a convention goes. My first convention was 1988 in the Omni in Atlanta, and if I think of the succeeding conventions in New York, uh, L.A., Boston, Chicago. This will be the first return to the South in, what, 24 years. 
Why why Charlotte? Why now? Well, you know, I actually uh, served on the uh, Site Selection Advisory Committee and, and traveled to all four of the finalist cities, uh, Charlotte along with St. Louis, uh, Minneapolis, and Cleveland. Um, I think our task on the advisory committee was really to look at each city from a logistical perspective, from a financial perspective. Obviously, each host city makes a commitment uh, to raise a certain amount of money uh, in order to support the convention. Our job was to go look and, um, you know, look under the hood and make sure that each city city had the uh, the requisite elements in order to support the convention, the hotel rooms, the the sports facilities, all of the things that we need in order to put on the convention. Uh, and really that gave the space for the folks who make the political decisions to to uh, to decide where they thought um, where they thought it would be best for us to go politically. I think uh, it's no secret that uh, you know the president won North Carolina by 15,000 votes in uh, 2008. He won Mecklenburg County where Charlotte is by a hundred thousand votes. So Charlotte and uh, the surrounding region are clearly very important to the president's reelection, and that's that's why we're down there. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of you as sort of the the wedding planner, as COO <laughs> of the world's largest four door wedding four day wedding. But um, you know, explain to uh, explain to the audience what it's like to. And I know you have production companies that you hire that handle sort of the minute by minute rundown and all that all that all those aspects. But having gone through these conventions before and now being in a major, major, major supervisory role, what kinds of things do you worry about 60 days out? What kinds of things do you worry about the week of? I think, uh, you know, 60 days out, really what we're doing right now is turning the planning that we've done into reality. We've, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about we've started construction this week. Uh, Frankly, I've been staring at plans of that arena for seven or eight months at this point. And, uh, you know, we now the other day, we're, we're taking out seats and, and turning it into what it what it's supposed to be. So right now, really, we're worried about uh, making sure we stay on schedule and all the things that need to happen in the arena happen in time for us to uh, actually hold the convention. Uh, we're, we've got a great team in place. We've got uh, a construction company led by some local uh, companies down there. We have a, a production company that we that's uh, produced the convention before. So our, our vendors, we're pretty confident in our vendors. Uh, during convention week, it's really worried about where we are worried about uh, getting folks around and, and again executing the plans that we've put in place, getting the delegates uh, to and from the the site, uh, getting them into and out of uh, their seats and, and areas in a, in a safe way. So, uh, really, what my team is is focused on that week is uh, is making sure we convey that information so that someone who shows up who has not been uh, uh, surrounding themselves in this planning for a year and a half like I have uh, is just is able to get uh, everything they need to get to get around the convention um, as easily as possible. That, that's really what we're worried about the week of. So, Theo, Denver was a bit of a schlep um, from, from, downtown, was, yes. <laughs> from downtown and the hotels to get through security and into the arena. Uh, was, did part of the thinking of Charlotte that it could be a more pedestrian experience, easy to navigate? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Charlotte is a very compact town. If you've ever been there, the the uptown area is uh, all very walkable, uh, and that was absolutely one of the advantages that we noted when we uh, when we first first got there. And let's let's stay on Denver for a second, because as a <laughs> as a student of tight shots and, yes. and of history, uh, and and a, a veteran of all the prior Democratic conventions going back to Atlanta, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that. The Democratic nominee had not accepted his nomination outdoors in an arena setting since 1960, John Kennedy at the L.A. Coliseum, yep. and also of what 
we might like to imagine our president looking uh, in the Rose Garden in a presidential stature. And if you think of the wide shot that so-called Column Gate gave this reminiscence of Kennedy in 60, and the tight shot gave the sort of uh, lattice work of the doorway in the in the rose garden and so it was it was serving several masters it was mm-hmm. it was a gorgeous creation but as i think about your role as director of media operations and my friend george codill and other people that i know who put so much time and effort into that event the fireworks that didn't happen uh was it heartbreaking to see what happened with drudge the day of the acceptance speech? Well, I think that what happened in 2008 really shows you why so much care goes into how something like that gets unveiled. I I think that, uh, you know, uh, in 2004, if you look at uh, President Bush's acceptance in New York, there were um, Greek columns on the video screens behind him. So it's not necessarily that the those elements aren't uh, appropriate in that setting. uh, But it's, uh, you know, that was a a photo that was was taken before the set was done. Uh, And uh, and I think that you see, um, you know, that's why it didn't necessarily get out in the way that um, that we had wanted it to get out. But I, I think that if you look at what happened in Denver, Denver was still, uh, I like to say, especially with regards to the weather, a pretty magical event. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was it, it didn't necessarily get in the way of, of the success uh, of what happened there. How important is working with the host city, not not only early on when you're putting the plans together and seeing what they're willing to offer and all those kinds of things, but then once the, the host city is collected, I see you have a Carolina Stories uh, series that you've started. Um, what, how, how are you working with the host city? As you put the plan together, and then and then even the week of, how are you? How, how does that come together? Sure. Well, actually, there are uh, the the official body of the city that that um, commits to all of the uh, the commitments that the city has made is is the host committee, and and that's goes the same for on both sides of the aisle. Um, we on the DNCC look uh, work very closely with the uh, with the host committee in Charlotte. They are actually on the same floor of the same office building that I am. Um, their job is really to um, is is to raise the funds that they've committed to, uh, and also to promote Charlotte and to make sure that Charlotte comes out looking great. Our job is to is to renominate the uh, renominate the president. Um, Working with this, but we work very closely with the city all the way through the process, especially with uh, on some of the security elements, fire department, police department, those sorts of folks. Um, so we are uh, it's a it's a constant partnership with the host city. Uh, Charlotte's been a fantastic partner. Uh, Mayor Anthony Fox and and everybody there. I you know I have to say the people of Denver were great and and were perfectly happy to have us there. Uh, everybody in Charlotte has just been so excited uh, to it's see. It's a big us. deal for them. It is. Yeah. It's absolutely a big deal for them and. Uh, uh, they've just been so excited and, and so welcoming, uh, and especially now that we're 50-so days out, uh, they are uh, very much excited for uh, the convention in September. 50 and days out or so, word is beginning to leak uh, from the, the convention that happened the week before in Tampa, the Republican convention, that New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will be the, the keynote speaker. What can you share with us this week now about how the days of the convention will unfold leading up to President Obama's speech. Well, I think that uh, you know we have some unique events happening uh, in Charlotte this time around that you've not seen before. Uh, we've actually shortened the convention; it's three days long. Uh, and Monday, which happens to be Labor Day for our convention this year, is going to be marked by um, a celebration in Uptown Charlotte called Carolina Fest. Again, open to the public. Really, our goal from the get-go has been to make this uh, an open and accessible convention. And as part of that, um, this is completely free and open to the public. Uh, it'll be a uh, 
Uptown Festival there in Charlotte, which will be, I think, great for anybody who wants to attend. Tuesday and Wednesday will be uh, our traditional convention sessions in Time Warner Cable Arena. Honestly, they, uh, the, the programming elements of that are just beginning to, to come together, and that's, um, that's really something that, uh, that I'm sure you'll hear about next month or so. Uh, and then on Thursday, uh, we're going to Bank of America Stadium for, uh, for the president's acceptance speech. And I think that um, certainly that'll look a lot like it did in Denver. Uh, it's a similarly sized facility, and uh, we're doing a lot of the, um, the same layout on the field and, and that sort of thing. But it's going to be exciting because, once again, we, you know, we have the opportunity to welcome uh, so many Americans into that event, which is, which is not necessarily something that people always get to experience. So we're, we're excited to do that. Now, Josh, as the uh, Republican uh, co-host this week, I think it's only right for me to quickly inject sodium pentothal to ask the following question. <laughs> of course, of uh, course. <laughs> uh, and that is, isn't, is there less excitement when you are re-electing an incumbent president than Denver was uh, with all the adulation and, and, you know, and everything that Obama had at the time? Well, I think that it's uh, this election cycle on all fronts is is certainly different but uh, what we've seen uh, is certainly that there is a high level in, of excitement and um, you know I, I can't speak for the campaign but on the convention front uh, certainly folks are extraordinarily excited um, we we just had um, you know some of the representatives from the delegations come and visit uh, the excitement is certainly there of course it's different uh, as a as a re-election uh, but uh, but it's it's there's still a level of excitement and people are are very excited to come to start to Charlotte and and see what's going to happen there Theo, you, your your political career has brought you uh, to work for Wesley Clark and his presidential campaign for Kerry and Edwards and theirs. Uh, you've worked uh, with President Clinton after his presidency. You've, uh, as we've talked about, worked in the, the Denver uh, convention and now in Charlotte. Uh, why did you, how did you decide to get into this and, and what brought you into politics in the first place? I was actually, uh, I got into politics. I was in uh, in college. I went to Penn and uh, I was did student events there, speakers and concerts and that sort of thing. And through that, met um, a, a mutual friend of ours, Josh Craig Manassian, uh, and he Manassian. Uh, and he pulled me in. He introduced me to uh, Advance, and I was actually an engineering student. Uh, and I uh, I graduated with an engineering degree, and I I was going to go be a, an IT consultant. Uh, and then the uh, dot com crash hit, and my job was not there anymore. Uh, and uh, and uh, Craig helped me get a job with um, uh, with Carl McCall when he was running for governor in 2002. Uh, and I sort of. I had a great time and uh, and never looked back uh, and and uh, so I worked for McCall in 2002 uh, for Wes Clark and then uh, John Kerry in 2003-2004 and Center for American Progress and it just uh, you know it was bit by the bug and and really had a lot of fun with it and uh, obviously really enjoyed working on the convention in Denver in 2008 and that was why I was so excited about coming back uh, to do it again in 2012. Now, I mean, I'm a, now that the ahead, sodium man. pentothal is beginning to sink in, tell <laughs> us your tell us your most stressful advanced story. <laughs> my most stressful, <laughs> my, my most stressful advanced story. You know, it's got to be uh, you know back on the McCall campaign. I mean, I was. I was working is 2002. I was working for Carl McCall. Um, I was uh, the advanced staffer. Uh, there, <laughs> he was not. Uh, it was not a well-funded campaign in a state of 20 million people. In a state of 20 million people, he was running for governor of New York. Um, 
And, uh, you know, there were just so many times when, uh, you know, you, I'd show up uh, at, uh, you know, in Syracuse or Albany or one of those places, uh, and I was just about the, they, we had a great field staff, but it would be like me and the field organizer, and that was it. And, uh, and the, you know, this was my first real campaign, my first opportunity. And so, you know, you're sort of, uh, you have the perpetual crowd guy feeling in that, you know, oh, we've set up an event for 400 people tomorrow. Uh, you know, and so when it's, when the gates open and there's only about 200 there, you're, you're sweating bullets. So I, I, that's, that's, I think what, what's always the most stressful thing in the world is, is the, is that crowd elements, whether it's, you're expecting 400 and there's 200 or whether you're expecting, uh, you know, 80,000 until they put, uh, show up in the seats, it's, that's right. there's always that pit in your stomach. Yep. Yeah. Cause you wake up at dawn, you get, you, the staging guys get their stuff done. The lighting guys get their stuff done. The sound checks are done. The the dogs come in to sweep. The place is freaking empty. And then you say, okay, let's let them in. And you just don't know if the crowd is going to show. Yeah, absolutely. My, the best piece of advice that was ever given to me was by a White House advance staffer when I was just doing volunteer advance in 05. And, uh, and it was uh, uh, keep quiet on game day. <laughs> that's that's a good idea. As, yes. a, as a secondary advanced guy, you know, don't be on the microphone barking stuff out. Just listen and answer if you you know speak when spoken to. Yes. <laughs> Theo Lecomte, uh, chief operating officer of the 2012 Democratic National Convention, set to begin in Charlotte on September 3rd. Theo, I'll just end with a question, a uh, personal one. Um, has Jenny ever told you about the song that I wrote about her? Uh, no, uh, I I did Awkward. not know. Awkward. <laughs> I did not know that you had written a song about my wife. No. Well, well, in, with with great embarrassment directed song. toward her, <laughs> uh, with huge deference to Art Garfunkel, and and the fact that I'm missing my duet partner Adam Rossman, it goes something like this. <laughs> what a dream I had, Jenny Anger Bretson, known <laughs> as Tiger. Press secretary to Dick Durbin, softer than the rain. <laughs> you know what? Now that you mention it, I actually have heard that song. I, it's, that's, a, it's, it's a great tune. It's, she is uh, softer than the rain. You're yes. Right uh, press secretary to Dick Durbin. That's that's the great line. Uh, <laughs> that goes way back. Yes. No, I, I have heard about that one. So. Theo Lecomte, see you in Charlotte. Excellent. Yes, we'll see you guys down there. As I walked and when you ran to me, your cheeks flushed with the night. We walked on frosted fields of juniper and lamplight. I held your hand. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. So we began our show, Matt, talking about uh, where things currently stand with the vice presidential pick. We talked with Theo about the plans for the party convention. But now let's go very long and talk with one of the real experts of presidential history and the institution of the presidency. Bob Merry is editor of The National Interest and the author of three previous books on American history and politics, A Country of Vast Designs, James K. Polk, The Mexican War, and The Conquest of the American Continent. Sands of Empire, Missionary Zeal, American Foreign Policy, and the Hazards of Global Ambition, and Taking the World, Joseph and Stuart Alsop, Guardians of the American Century, an institution of the Washington Journalism Circles, and since 2011, editor of the National Interest, Bob Merry, 
Welcome. Thank you very much for your new book, Where They Stand, The American Presidents in the Eyes of Voters and Historians. After this, this uh, incredibly in-depth book about James K. Polk and his single-term four-year presidency and the expansion to the Pacific and the Oregon Territory and Colorado and California and the fight of the Mexican War, you now go pull pull the lens way back and look at the expanse of our 44 presidents and how voters, academics, and history view their tenures. Why did you go so wide with this book? Well, the presidency has always been something that's fascinated me. I, I think that the presidency is actually a work of genius, of civic genius that our founding fathers came up with, and it wasn't easy. They struggled with the presidency as much as they struggled with almost anything during the Constitutional Convention in uh, Philadelphia in uh, 1787. Um, and I was, I've always been interested in the academic polls, the polls of historians and uh, the rankings of the presidents and the body of literature that has emerged since 1948 when Arthur Schlesinger Sr. of Harvard started this uh, exercise of polling historians and so-called experts on how good the presidents were and how they should be rated and ranked uh, among themselves. And what occurred to me was missing in all of that was a, an understanding or a sense at least of what the voters were saying contemporaneously, how the voters were feeling about their presidents at the time that they were serving. So that if a president, for example, is reelected, obviously the voters were happy with him. If he's reelected and then succeeded by his own party, obviously the voters were happy with his second term as well. What was happening in midterm elections can be significant. Uh, and so I thought, well, it would be interesting to sort of look at that and do a kind of an overlay so that you can compare the judgment of the electorate with the judgment of history, so-called, or the judgment of the historians. And what's interesting is that they generally overlap, but not always. And when they don't, that's cause for some interesting uh, analysis and ponderings. Bob, you, you, uh, you have some categories here I thought that were interesting, where you, you talk about you know near greats, people who are who's standing as fluctuated war presidents. As you look at sort of uh, current current uh, uh, affairs, both with President Bush 43 and with President Obama, I'm guessing President Bush 43 might fit in a couple of different categories. Um, where would you where would you put Bush 43 and where would you put Obama in how, you, how you've uh, listed some of those categories? Yeah. One thing I want to say is that the book is thematic. It's not, I did not want to do a catalog of uh, little profiles of all the presidents. So every chapter has its own theme. And one of the themes is entitled War and Peace. It's about the war-making power and the presidents who either took us to war or inherited wars and how they handled those wars. Uh, oh, you asked me about George W. Bush. Uh, yeah. Well, he was a wartime president, and uh, his war was not a successful war uh, by the electoral standard. Uh, the American people always rally behind the president when he takes the country to war, but they basically do so on the basis of certain principles. Number one, um, uh, we want you to take us to war based on solid rationale, Number two, we want the rationale to hold up over the course of the war. Number three, we want the war to have a, a finish line. We want there to be uh, a, a goal that is satisfied in, in uh, martial success. Uh, and then we want to move on from there. When a president um, has a lingering war that he can't really figure out how to get out of and can't win in any discernible way, that's a political negative, and George W. Bush uh, suffered a political negative as a result of that, along with the economy and some other things. You were you were talking about polling, and I guess you can say, on the one hand, you have Gallup polling that's been done over a period of a couple generations. 
but then you also have, you know, electoral wins and losses in a way is also polling. What challenges did you find as you were doing this historical uh, work here uh, to look at, at there were, you know, presidencies where you would have, you know, polling that was reasonably scientific done by professionals uh, perhaps over the last 50 years versus some of those before then when there really wasn't that kind of polling that was quite as scientific? I didn't really look at polls uh, yeah. that were before um, the 40s when they became uh, scientific, and polling is not um, not a crucial part of my research. My book is very anecdotal. It's not a book of political science. It's designed to really give readers a tremendous uh, amount of American history easily absorbed. Um, but uh, what's interesting, I'll take Harry Truman as a good example. Harry Truman had probably the lowest approval rating that Gallup has ever recorded, 22% in 1948, his last year in office, last full year in office. And um, he uh, then uh, was very sternly told by the American people and his party, don't even think about running again. Uh, you, you don't have a chance to get the nomination. If you did, you, you wouldn't be elected. So he uh, wisely decided he wasn't going to do it. And yet the historians in the polls that occurred after he gave up the presidency uh, immediately placed him in a near great category. So you ask yourself, well, wait a minute. If the voters were saying this guy stinks and he needs to get out of there, why would the uh, historian say that he was so tremendous? Well, I talk about something called the longevity of success and the differential in how the voters rate presidents and how uh, the academics rate presidents. The historians look at the president's full tenure in office and what he accomplished, and if it was high, great, then they give him a great rating. Uh, the voters look at the presidents, their presidents, they own the office, uh, as the Constitution invites them to in four-year increments, because after all, they have hiring and firing authority over these guys, and they take it very seriously. Uh, so in the case of Truman, his first term, the inherited term, I, I describe it as heroic. I mean, it was just what he accomplished was truly amazing. He saved Western Europe. He made an agonizing decision to save probably a million American lives uh, by dropping that atomic bomb. Must have been terrible to make that decision. He successfully brought the country from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. Um, and all these major decisions, the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift, uh, the uh, uh, saving of uh, Turkey and Greece, and, and all the rest of it, tremendous. His second term, the full term, uh, was not a success. In fact, it could only be described as at best mediocre. It was characterized by a faltering economy pretty much throughout four years. Uh, he got himself into a war he couldn't control and couldn't get out of. Uh, there was a lot of petty corruption on the part of his own pals that he had brought back from Kansas City, uh, his cronies that he in, in, uh, put into places that they probably didn't belong. Uh, and Some so, of whom had got him into politics in the, to begin with. That's true. Got him where he was. It yeah. was the old machine. Um, and uh, so the American people basically said, well, um, we don't make a judgment on his first term. We think it was great. That's why we reelected him. But this term just doesn't, isn't, he's not eligible for rehire. Would you give the same credit, uh, Bob Murray, to Lyndon Johnson and the transition that he managed from the death of President Kennedy through the passage of civil rights legislation and then comment on what happened in the second term? Uh, I don't think it, it would be very difficult in historical terms, leaving aside any partisan thinking, to suggest that Lyndon Johnson's inherited term was anything uh, at, uh, his inherited term was anything other than monumental. Um, uh, as you said, you were reading Carroll's book in that uh, chapter on the transition and how he sort of snapped to attention. Yeah, uh, and, from, uh, a, from a from a totally languid <laughs> life as the vice president, he wanted to, he just lifeless. wanted to. 
to crawl under a shell and never be seen again. He's <laughs> exactly. telling his, his staff to go away and work for someone else. Total lethargy and, uh, uh, and to total uh, discipline. And uh, uh, really, every muscle and fiber was uh, at uh, peak performance uh, immediately. It was a truly amazing thing. And, and, he, and he managed to, through that energy and that understanding of how things worked, uh, to uh, make tremendous accomplishments in terms of the civil rights legislation, the transition from a, a, a dead beloved president, uh, and all the rest of it. He knew from the very beginning that Vietnam uh, threatened his presidency and threatened his place in history, and he was very much afraid of it. And yet he didn't seem um, in position. He didn't seem to know how to handle it. Uh, and if you look at his second term, Vietnam was everything. And pretty soon, when you have a problem as deep as Vietnam, then it begins to affect a lot of other things. And now you're having you're having demonstrations in the street that ends in heads being cracked and blood in the streets. That's a negative for a president. Yeah. You have uh, economic uh, dislocations or, or tensions that you didn't have before and wouldn't have had if you'd not been in a war you can't control. So, so uh, his second term was, uh, by any measure, a, a, a very serious failure. Let's hear this clip of, of what happened when he decided when he came on national television and, and get your comments on that as it leads into the 1970s. With our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. What does a speech like that do to the fundamental premise of where they stand? Basically, a guy taking himself out of a re-election fight. Uh, there's an anecdote in uh, my book uh, that I got from uh, my files from my Stuart Alsop research uh, when Alsop heard from Larry O'Brien, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, postmaster general, and he'd gone out to Wisconsin during the Wisconsin primary effort uh, and uh, got a call from Johnson because he saw this rally on the television set. And uh, Johnson says, uh, how's it going out there, Larry? And Larry said, Mr. President, uh, it's going terribly. Uh, you're you're going to get clobbered. And he says, well, but you had a big you had a big, big rally. I saw all the people. There was all kinds of excitement. He said, it was a put-up job, says Larry O'Brien. I had all these postal workers I brought in because <laughs> I didn't want to have an empty hall. And Linton ponders that for a minute. He says, and, and, and this was from Larry O'Brien to Stuart Alsop, and it was in Stuart Alsop's notes. He says, clobbered? Clobbered. Uh, so he knew um, what was going to happen to him. But that speech, I have to say, I don't know how many of your listeners were alive then or, or could remember that. I didn't hear it at, at the time, but I, I heard it immediately. I heard what had happened, and I immediately went to the television set and and uh, is, is repeated over and over again. I can't think of as stunning a presidential decision brought forward in terms of politics uh, of the like uh, that that speech represented. You can just, you could almost hear in retrospect the anguish uh, that Johnson was feeling at that moment. You, uh, you talk about uh, how presidents are men of destiny, and uh, it's an interesting phrase. Um, there is something about the presidency, I think, that um, 
you know, the, the American people feel a real connection to every American president, except for perhaps folks that are really, really partisan. Um, talk about how how has Dan- destiny manifest itself in a political sense? Um, I mean, there, there's a million steps an individual has to take to eventually become president of the United States, from what school they go to, to what decisions they make, to who they marry, to what career they choose, to what state they're from. Um, I don't know. Are there any interesting sort of anecdotes that you that you that you have in the book that talk about the the interesting choices that that people made along the way and how they may or may not have helped them sort of become a man of destiny? I have six presidents that I call leaders of destiny, and they uh, all meet three tests. Number one, they consistently have been ranked great or near great by the historians. Number two, they were two-term presidents succeeded by their own party, hence. Uh, considered uh, to be of the highest order by the electorate. And third, my own test was that in addition to those two things, they they transformed the political landscape of America and set the country upon a new course. It's not very easy to do, in part because the country doesn't want it done every time a president is elected, and therefore that's not an opportunity. But there were six presidents that were elected in those times of crisis or near crisis or times of sort of what you might call event pregnancy. Uh, and they were, in order, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and Franklin Roosevelt. I write in the book that I believe that Ronald Reagan is going to find his way into that circle um, because he m- meets certainly the uh, electoral test, and he certainly transformed the political landscape and set the country on a new course. The, the historians have not yet uh, sort of consistently put him in the top circle, but he's moving in that direction, and I think that within... 10 or 15 years he will be there, and therefore he will be logically a man of leader of destiny by my reckoning. Um, uh, and yes, they made, they, they made numerous decisions that could have gone the other way, uh, and it's uncanny almost how these presidents understood how to uh, get their hands on the levers of, a, of political power and manipulate them in such a way as to move the country, and it's, it's like steering a big battleship, it doesn't move easily, uh, towards their vision, which means implies that they have to have had a vision, and not all presidents do, in fact, have a vision. Bill Clinton is a good example. I describe Bill Clinton as a, as a good president. He was a good steward of our country during his eight years. I think his first two years were um, a disappointment to the collective electorate, and they sort of he had his head handed to him by the voters, uh, which a tad in, messy, which implies that uh, he wasn't uh, taking the country where it wanted to go. But he got the message and created a very well calibrated uh, sense of how to govern the country from the center left. The country was very comfortable with it, and he um, moved nicely through the remainder of his term. However, he, even though he was accumulating political capital during that time. He didn't really invest it in much, uh, and the result was that Small he couldn't ball. rise yeah. up to uh, to to greatness. So he was good, a good president, not a great president. And he often he often uh, laments the uh, the fact that he didn't live sort of in an interesting time, right, with a world crisis or a war or an economic crisis. I mean, I think he believe if you you listen to what he says when he's interviewed, he often I think wishes he had been president during 9/11, perhaps president during the economic meltdown. He thinks I think both that Bush and Obama have had. Uh, presidencies where you can rise to greatness. I think that's his view. I think that is his view, and he said that more than once, and it seems to be something of an ongoing lament. Um, I would say that there are presidents, however, who have significantly changed the landscape that did not come in in a time of crisis or did not have crisis thrust upon them. Teddy Roosevelt's a very good example. Um, The industrial era, the Republican Party was the 
was the political custodian of uh, American industrialization in the 19th century after the Civil War. And over time, a lot of problems and abuses were accumulating and they needed to be addressed. And he was the president who basically said, uh, even though this is the party of industrialization, I'm going to be within that context a reformer of industrialization. Uh, and uh, that proved to be a very significant departure point for the country. Bob, I've just finished this book uh, about an earlier part of Teddy Roosevelt's life called Island of Vice, the period that he served as police commissioner of the mm -hmm. city of New York. And the book portrays him as this reformer regaling against all of the uh, prostitution, crime, gambling, alcohol, all of the abuses, the Sunday closure of the of bars, uh, and, and almost enfeebling himself against a city that basically didn't want to adopt his similar set of virtues, and he seems so unprepared and immature to deal with the, the presidency, which he would get just several years later after serving as McKinley's assistant secretary of the Navy. How did Teddy Roosevelt mature into the office from this guy who really just wanted to rise in politics and, and make an impact in a place like New York? Then within a few years, he's president of the United States. In some ways, he never really did. I mean, he had some serious limitations from a temperament standpoint uh, that affected his presidency. For example, his relations with Congress were abysmal, partly because he wouldn't listen to them. And he once uh, said, I think it's quoted in my book, he once said, uh, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to have a, a pride of lions that I could uh, set loose in the Congress. And <laughs> whoever he was talking to, I don't know who it was, it might have been John Hay or somebody said, uh, um, well, what if what if they uh, attack the wrong people? He said, well, they wouldn't if they were there long enough. <laughs> so uh, he, he didn't really have much, um, he didn't have uh, much respect for members of Congress, and the way he dealt with Congress reflected that, and that was part of this same temperament. I'm, I'm engaged in some uh, preliminary research now for a potential book on that period, and I was struck by uh, Teddy Roosevelt when he was Assistant Navy Secretary, and the secretary, the, the naval secretary, was a guy by the name of Long, and uh, and and Long felt like he couldn't take an afternoon off because he didn't know what uh, Teddy Roosevelt was going to do right. with his department. <laughs> and at one point, he had to go see the doctor, and he calls Teddy Roosevelt in, and he said, "This was just before the Spanish-American War." That's right. And he says, uh, "Now I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do anything, even if you think it's something I would do. I don't want you to do anything." Um, uh, and so he goes off to see the doctor, and Roosevelt immediately um, violates uh, that uh, instruction and uh, sends off orders, and he basically tells uh, uh, George Dewey, the uh, Commodore out in the Pacific, the Pacific Fleet, that he needed to coal up and get ready for the battles because the war is going to come. Uh, and the fact of the matter was his decision was exactly right. Long should have been making that decision. But it was totally wrong in terms of uh, the maturity that he brought, to use your word, that he brought to uh, that particular equation. The guy, the guy fascinates me, and he, he kind of tickles me. Yeah. Your, uh, your book, uh, entitled Where They Stand, which I'm sure is on sale on Amazon and, and other fine booksellers, um, perhaps uh, should have been titled Where They Stood. I mean, it's, it seems like you set up a different uh, way of evaluating presidents and, 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 and looking at how they were viewed at the time by the voters. Um, it, makes me wonder, uh, as you did research of this and you looked at it and, and used anecdotes, who are the most misunderstood, at least as they're rated today as the sort of general understanding of where presidents are, who are the most misunderstood or perhaps, you know, uh, underestimated or overestimated? Um, well, I think that the 
the way to parse that question would be to look at the disparities between what the historians say and what the voters were thinking. And so one good example would be Warren G. Harding, elected in 1920, died in office. He served most of his, of his initial term, um, his elected term. Um, uh, he was elected by the country primarily to negate Wilsonism. The country was fed up with Woodrow Wilson. Wilson was a great example of the split decision presidents I talk about. His first term was was um, successful by any measure. His second term was a total disaster in almost every respect. The uh, People forget, but the um, economic dislocation that occurred in 1919 and 1920 um, could easily have thrust the country right into a depression of the kind that we had uh, 10 years later. Uh, and uh, so this very colorless, very attractive-looking man, I mean, was, his greatest qualification was that he looked like what everybody thought a president should look like, but he was a colorless man of not too much imagination, um, not particularly intellectually bold, but he did what the voters asked him to. He reversed uh, Wilson's economic policies. He brought about tremendous economic growth, including 1922, 14, think of this, 14% GDP growth. Uh, I don't, I think it's the highest we've ever had in the country. Um, he didn't get us into any intractable wars. Nothing bad happened to the country when he was president. There was a scandal that erupted after his death, uh, which made him look like he was sort of presiding um, blithely over a mess that he should have been um, more on top of, and he had some terrible people in his cabinet, but he also had some tremendous people in his cabinet. Uh, so I don't think that, that his uh, ranking as a failure, and he's consistently ranked as a failure in the polls, um, really um, measures up. Um, now, is there another example? Let's see if we can find an example. You mentioned Truman as one, potentially. Uh, Truman's a good example. Yeah. Any others? So, well, let's go the other direction. Let's find uh, somebody who was hailed by the historians and not by the voters. That, uh, my favorite example is Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, we don't know a lot about Grover Cleveland or even his era, but we do know, most every school child knows, that he's the only president who served two non-consecutive terms. What's less understood is that after each term, the voters tossed out his party the first time with him on the ticket, the second time after his party had basically told him that they weren't going to put him on the ticket uh, because they didn't think he had earned it. Uh, so they put um, uh, William Jennings Bryan on the ticket, and he and he lost to McKinley. So uh, Grover Cleveland is our only two-time, one-term president, and yet he <laughs> was ranked in the first poll, 1948, by Arthur Schlesinger Sr., number eight. Uh, and I, again, I think that if you sort of crank in what the voters were saying, you'd have to say, wait a minute, this should be a test to go back and look and see whether he really deserves to be number eight. And I frankly don't think he does. You've been listening to our conversation with Bob Merry, author of Where They Stand, The American Presidents in the Eyes of Voters and Historians. Bob Merry is the editor of The National Interest. I want to uh, end our conversation, Bob, by posing a question. Going back to your previous book, um, about James K. Polk, A Country of Vast Designs, and what that man was able to accomplish in one term that he only set out to serve one term and uh, extended America's territorial destiny out to the Pacific. Thinking about the future of the presidency, and some recommendations are coming about if, there, if the presidency is in need of reform, is a six-term, one-term presidency 
something that should be more closely considered to take out this specter of re-election and whether the voters ratify the president's next four years, or do you like it the way it is? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, six-year, a, a six-year, one-term yeah. president. The Mexican, yeah. the Mexican model. Uh, the Mexican model, or the model, or the that, French model, or sure. And it was also the model that that served as the sort of the um, prototype. Uh, in the debates at the Constitutional Convention, for most of the time in which they kept coming back to the presidency, the default position was actually seven years, um, one term, um, elected by Congress. Uh, no, I'm not in favor of that, and I'll tell you why. Because I really do believe that the uh, genius of the system is the extent to which this office is tied to the American people. Uh, and it's tied to the American people. They own the office. The office belongs to them. Uh, and they, as I say, take it very seriously. That's one of the reasons why they really revere their presidents and why they're very demanding in terms of what they expect from their presidents. Uh, and they have a shot at them every four years. And four years, in my view, is really the optimal time frame because the American people can feel very comfortable with their judgment, however harsh it might be. They, the guy's had four years to demonstrate what he can do. Uh, and in the referendum politics that I think is how our presidential elections work, uh, they don't have to do, be too concerned about who the next guy is going to be because he only has four years and there's only so much damage he can do in term, in, 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 assuming that he may not be all that uh, they hope uh, in, in four years. And therefore, I think that that particular time frame uh, lends a great deal of stability to the system. Bob Mary, author of where they stand, and editor of The National Interest. Thanks so much for joining Matt Makoviak and me on Polyopolis. This is POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.